Father, thank you that you're a great God. Thank you for this morning already. Pray that these next few moments as you we open your word together, that you might speak to our hearts uh, through your word. And I pray that where there's need for conviction, God, you would convict. And where there's need for comfort, encouragement, that, Father, your word would do that. We love you today. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Um, I think it's so cool to celebrate what God does, and we need to do that more often. Well, today we come to the last of Ten Commandments. How many of you are ready to be done with these? Well, let me give you the bad news. You never will be. Okay. Uh, these things are such a vital part of our life, and and they do so many things, and we'll talk about those this morning in some ways. But we've kind of taken a journey over the last 12 weeks, actually, through uh, the 10 uh, commandments that God gave to the Israelites that were critical in them understanding how they relate to God and then critical in understanding how they relate to one another. The first four commandments have to do with how we relate to God. Uh, you shall have no gods before me. Uh, you shall not make unto me any graven image and bow down and worship that image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you shall uh, uh, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Those first four commandments are designed for our relationship with God. It would be found in the simplified version of that that Jesus talked about in his encounter with the legal people. They said, according to you, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, first, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. But the second one, he said, is likened unto it. You're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, to do that, there's some things you should not do. Okay? You shouldn't, you shouldn't steal, kill, commit adultery. You shouldn't lie. And you shouldn't covet. You shouldn't covet. In fact, the, the, the command we're going to look at today is Exodus 20, verse 17. It says, you shall not covet, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, that doesn't sound, I mean, we understand neighbor's house. How many of you have a neighbor? How many of, you have, how many of them have a house? Okay, all right. You shouldn't cover your, your neighbor, his house. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. That's a good idea. Right? All right. His male servant, husband. No. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> I, female servant, wife, again. Ladies are all going, amen to that. My husband's a servant. So. Uh, his ox. Anybody's anybody have an ox? Anybody's neighbor have an ox? Okay, let's just say it this way. His BMW. Or in my case, his Silverado. Because I just have a Nissan. Uh, his donkey. Anybody here, neighbor have a donkey? <laughs> you know what the King James word for that is, right? We won't go there. Um, but um, his donkey, let's just say his dog. 
okay? How many, how, many of you, how many of you know your neighbor has a dog? Don't want their dog, okay? I don't want my neighbor's dog. Or anything else that's your neighbor's. Let's just cover it all. Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Because we go back and say, well, who is your neighbor? Well, I think in this case, your neighbor is basically whoever's beside you. It's not just, just talking about you not coveting the people who are directly around you. It's talking about basically just don't covet. I mean, it's just cut to the chase. Let's deal with this whole issue of covetousness in our life. Now, um, I really believe that this is probably the most violated commandment in the Bible, but the, less, the least confessed commandment in the Bible. You know, I, I've been pastoring for 40 years and... And I, I think probably in the course of my life, I've probably had uh, countless people confess all of the other sins, all of them. I've had people say, yeah, God, I'm not really letting God be God, or I've got some false gods in my life. Or maybe people have said, you know, I, I, I have some things that are graven images. I worship these things that, that I shouldn't worship. I've had people say, ooh, I've taken God's name in vain. Uh, even if you take the most simple version of that, uh, I've had people say, well, I, I don't really take time to rest and remember that God's God and I'm not. That's remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. I've had so many people who have said to me, I've lied. I've stolen. I've even had people confess to me the sin of murder. In my first church, in the first, first year I was there, I had to go in and sit down with two people who had committed horrendous murders. And they confessed to me that they had taken someone's life. I've had people confess adultery. And I've even had people confess that they had lied. But I don't remember one time in my life anyone coming to me and saying, Pastor, I need God to forgive me because I am a covetous human being. And yet, when I look at this commandment, what I really believe you'll find is that the commandment in and of itself really kind of exposes the motivation for all the other violations. It really does. I mean, you say, well, you mean covetousness has something to do with us not honoring God as God? Yes, it has something to do. In fact, the first temptation that was ever brought before human beings was uh, a sin to some degree that in sort of engaged in the spirit of covetousness because when Satan came to them, he said, look, you know, look at all that's around you. you God said you can't have this. And what did they decide they wanted? They wanted what God said they couldn't have. But more importantly, he said, no, no, you don't understand. You'll not die. But in the day you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And covetousness began to emerge into the heart of humanity. And I would almost be safe to say, I think, that every violation of the law Every violation of the law, if you look at it and you brush away all of the motivations, I think you'll find down there there's this root called covetousness. Uh, 
we all know Paul, the Apostle Paul, and we know that the Apostle Paul was Saul before he was Paul, or we maybe don't, maybe not everybody knows that, but there's a man named Saul, and he was uh, a persecutor of the church, a righteous man. That's always bugged me. He was a persecutor of the church and yet recognized as a righteous man. Um, and yet, um, Paul, I think, in Romans 7, sort of maybe gives us a hint into what convicted him of all the sin in his life. In fact, in Romans 7, we read these words because he's basically affirming that there's a significant value and purpose for the law. And he says, what we, shall we say, that the law is sin? He says, by no means. The law is not sin, um, yet, it, if it ha- it, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Where the law is not sin, what law does is it exposes sin, doesn't it? Um, why do we put speed limits out? So you'll know what the speed limit is, right? So you have something to ignore. <laughs> right? But when you go to the courts, the, the sign does not convict you. Uh, the sign shows you that you are convictable. Is what it does. It, it, it shows you that you violated a law. And the, the sign did not make you speed. The sign just showed you that you were a speeder. And he says these words. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known that I'd sinned. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, why did Paul, of all the laws that he could have mentioned in this passage of Scripture, mention this one particular law? I don't know. I don't know all the reasons. But there's a suspicion in me that makes me think that maybe Paul knew that the issue of covetousness that existed in his heart was the cause of his violation of every one of the laws that God had created. Paul said to Timothy, he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. If we use it lawfully, to use the law unlawfully is not good. But if one uses the law lawfully, it is good. You see, an appropriate understanding of the law allows us to be a useful guide. It is a useful guide in knowing that the law, when applied by the grace of God, establishes and maintains our freedom. We've been talking about we've been set free to live free. And when we have a proper understanding of the law and and, and, and how we have violated and, and what God has done to, to really uh, give us victory over the law, then all of a sudden this amazing law provides for us parameters within which we live to keep us from going back into the bondage that we had experienced before we knew Christ. And this particular sin is one that plagues us all. So this morning, I want to do three things. I want us to take and look at three steps for kind of dealing with the issue of covetousness in our life. The first thing that I want us to do is I want to understand the biblical meaning of covetousness. I want us to look at the biblical meaning of covetousness. You got to know what it means before you can know whether or not you're guilty of it. Does that make sense? Everybody get that? 
And so I want, you to, I want us to look at it this morning. I want us to think about what does this whole word covetousness mean? The word covet in the Old Testament means to take pleasure in, to desire passionately. This sin causes people to desire that which is destructive. And it's, it's, it's beyond just the idea of desire. Okay, there is, a, we all have desires. We have hungers, we have thirst, we have desires in our life. But the word covetousness takes us far beyond the idea of desire because desire in and of itself is not bad, but it's an unhealthy kind of desire that drives us to a point of living life in a destructive way. Not only destruction as it relates to us personally, but as it relates to other people. Um, Covetousness uh, would be people who want more and more. They want bigger and bigger. They want better and better. And they will seldom be satisfied with what they have. This sin is obviously present in every age. Throughout the Bible, you see this sin of, of, of covetousness. I could take you down the road of people throughout the Old Testament. I can show you examples of people in the New Testament where covetousness was a part of their life. Cain slew Abel. And covetousness was a part of that. You think about the sin of, uh, of, of David and Bathsheba. You think about so many illustrations throughout the Bible. We'll talk about those in just a few moments. And the truth is, is this sin is so powerful and abundant in the heart of mankind uh, it, it is actually one of the, it is the only thought commandment, not that the others can't be produced in our thoughts, but it's the only thought commandment that we're given in the New Testament. He says, you shall not covet with your mind. In other words, you need to take control of your thoughts. Covetousness that exists inside, exists inside of us uh, is at the root of our attraction to sin. It's the root of our attraction to sin. James, in uh, the half-brother of Jesus, illustrated it well in this verse when he says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, we've talked about this in the church many times here that, you know, one of the things you got to learn is where this where this problem is coming from in your life because there's three T's. You might want to write these down that I think that, you, that, that are important for you to understand. First of all, there's, there's, there's temptation. Temptation is the problem in us. If I'm being tempted, it's, I can't blame it out there. I, the problem is inside here. There are temptations. There are trials. Trials are those mechanisms that try to draw us into the things we're tempted to. And then there are tests. I've always said temptation comes from within me, trials come from around me, and tests come from God. God tests me. Why does God test me? Because he's a good teacher. And if you recognize where they're coming from, then you know how to deal with it. If you're being tested, I'd say you need to get in touch with the teacher. If you're under trials, you need to understand what is it in the world around me that's trying to draw me away, but understand nothing in the world out there can draw you away unless there's something in here that wants it. And temptation comes from the inside. That's why I think it's important that the Bible says no temptation is taking you, but such as is common man, God's faith will not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able, will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may escape it, you may 
walk away from those things. So you got to understand these kinds of things. And so he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Circle those words, lured and enticed by his own desires. That's a good definition of covetousness. Then desire, when it's conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, covetousness exists when an unhealthy desire does these things. First of all, when an unhealthy desire captures or sort of consumes our mind. Have you ever, you ever had a thought just capture your mind you can't get rid of it, a thought you don't want? Anybody ever not had that? Some of you having that right now. You're saying, when is he going to finish? <laughs> okay. You can't get that out of your brain. So you're not listening, hearing a word I say, right? Okay. But the truth is, what happens is that something captures our thinking. I, I really am of the belief that sin may be present in my flesh, but it really doesn't matter in my flesh until somehow my mind is captured. Um, when, when it captures my mind, then suddenly it begins to engage my body. It begins to control my body, my mind, my emotions, my will. It begins to consume it is what it begins to do. It controls it. And then if I'm not careful and I don't take captive those things to the Lordship of Christ, because it's really the answer to your mind being taken captive is you bring your thoughts and deeds captive to the Lordship of Christ. But if you don't do that, then it begins to corrupt your life. It affects your physical person. It affects you emotionally, it affects you financially, it affects you relationally, it affects you in different ways. Now, you've got to understand this, and this is very important. Paul in Romans 12, 2, it's not on your outline, you're not going to have it there. Most of you know this verse. It's the passage in Romans 12 where he says, uh, I beseech you, or I urge you, brethren, by God's mercy to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is reasonable that we would do that in light of what God did for us. It's reasonable that we would offer ourselves to God, right? Does that make everybody agree with that? I mean, it just makes sense, okay? And then he says these words, and do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the controlling of your flesh. Is that what he says? He says, be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So that with your mind, you can prove what is God's good and acceptable and perfect will. See, I really believe, and I really believe it. We're living in a time where people want to, um, we want to think somehow we can fix it. So how are you doing? But here's what I know. If you don't change the way you think about a certain subject or problem in your life and begin bringing it in submission to the truth of God's word, you will never have victory over that problem. All real change begins in the mind. It's when we begin to bring our lives into alignment with what God says. So he says, don't be conformed. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So covetousness is this really unhealthy effort on our part to satisfy our desires with things that are outside of God's plan and will for our life. 
Well, knowing that, let's now identify the undesirable characteristics of covetousness. How many of you have ever uh, seen commercials on TV, um, uh, a medical, I mean, these medicine commercials on TV, and they give you all these symptoms, okay? And, you know, if you're feeling this and this and this and this, you need this pill. Of course, if you take this pill, you're going to have diarrhea. <laughs> a lot of it. So you have to decide, is this symptom worse than this symptom? I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about? I know you're not supposed to say diarrhea in church, but... You guys know what I'm talking about? And by the time they get through, because the list of things it can do to you is about this long, and you think, I'd just soon die with a disease. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about? But there are symptoms. There are symptoms. Let me, let me give you th- some of them this morning, I, I, and I probably, this probably doesn't cover it, but uh, let, me, let me give it to you anyway. Number one, when covetousness has captured your heart, you have an insatiable obsession with possessions. You have an insatiable obsession with possessions. Um, we, we, we just like stuff. Americans like stuff, don't we? We're stuffy people, aren't we? You know, America's the only place in the world I know that has 4,000 square foot homes and then we own a storage unit to keep the stuff we don't ever use. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Try to get rid of that stuff. It's stuff. We're obsessed with it. We're obsessed with possessions. Uh, The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. The reason we love money is because it can buy us possessions. It's the little bumper sticker. I haven't seen it in a long time, but you see it all the time. You say, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Okay? Now, here's what Ecclesiastes 5.10 says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied. If you have money and you don't love it, you'll probably be okay. But if you love money, you'll never be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. It's just vain. It's vain. Remember Jesus' encounter with a guy and he had so much and he just kept building more and more barns to storage units to keep his stuff and one day God says, hey, young man, tonight your soul will be required of you. I used to say this a lot, but it's true. I've done a lot of funerals in my life, and I've never once seen a hearse followed by a U-Haul. <laughs> Ever. Or a Brinks truck. And we obsess with those things. It's this insatiable obsession with possession. Nothing wrong with having things. The problem in our world is not that we have things. It's they have us. They took ownership of us. And by the way, you don't ever really own anything. It owns you. Have many of you ever thought, if I could just have that automobile, I would be happy, happy, happy? Okay? And guess what? You buy it, and it's really cool for about 30 days, and then the first payment is due, Right? <laughs> Or let's say you're even rich enough to pay cash for it. I mean, you've disciplined yourself and you have, you pay cash for your whatever vehicle, Silverado pickup, guys. (laughs) Guess what? About 4,000 miles in, you got to take it in and change the oil. And then the brakes wear out. And in a few years, it, you found out something, you didn't own it, it owned you. Same thing with houses. 
And, and they begin to take possession of our life is what they do. And, 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 and again, there, there's nothing wrong with having things. The problem in our world is not that we have things, is that they take captivity of our heart and begin to possess us and drive us. And we can't say no. We owe, we owe, so off to work we go. The second thing is a nagging dissatisfaction with life. We have this nagging dissatisfaction with life. It's, it's like we, we just got to have the next thing to be happy. If I, could just be, just, if I could just have this, I would be happy. I would be fulfilled. Fulfilled. And there's this nagging dissatisfaction with our life. We're never really satisfied with the life we have. I did a, a wedding Friday night, um, and um, it was it was a beautiful wedding, uh, wonderful couple, and, and uh, I did the wedding. And when the wedding was over, I was standing out at the reception talking, and uh, one of the groomsmen came over to me and he goes, "I liked what you said tonight." I said, well, what did I say? He said, well, I just liked what you said. He said, uh, you know, when I got married, I didn't really know the pastor, and I knew these two kids, one of them very well. I've known him for a long time. And, and um, he said, the guy who did my wedding, he didn't know us. It was just kind of a formality. And he said, but you, did, you knew these guys. And, but what you said was really, really amazing. And he said, it showed me something. And this is what he said to me. Literally, here's what he said to me. He said, um, I've accomplished a lot as a young man, but on the inside, I'm empty. That's not an open door for a preacher, is it? <laughs> and of course, I whip out the three circles, man. We went through the three circles, and it was so cool because here's a guy who's accomplished so much. He was, a, he was an engineer on a nuclear submarine in the Navy. That's pretty cool, huh? Especially for the guys. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Got out, got a great job, married, has a little boy. He said, and he said this, he said, I'm so empty on the inside. He said, I do not want that for my son. And boy, we walked through the gospel at a wedding. And I'm trusting that God's Holy Spirit is going to continue to work in his kid's life. And that he's going to find the only thing that will fill his life. Solomon, who was the richest man on the face of the earth, said it this way. He said, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. Number three, the inability to obey God's warnings. Covetousness is what keeps us, one of the primary things that keeps us from obeying God's warnings. I'm going to give you two illustrations of that. I could give you a bunch of illustrations of that. God had delivered the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. They had come out and made a decision that they were more fearful of giants than they were confident in God, and so they spend 40 years wandering around out in the wilderness. And then finally, after that generation dies off, God, through Joshua, allows the Israelites to go into the promised land. And he promises them 
that he would conquer their enemies, is what he said. But he said, there are things I want you to do and not do in the conquering process. One of the things I want you to do is I want you to go in and conquer, and I want you to take any of the spoils of war because there's corruption in that, is what there is. Uh, at one point, uh, they went to a little place. They went to Jericho. They win. Then they go to a little place called Ai, a little town called Ai, and one of the soldiers sees the stuff. You ever seen the stuff? And the Bible says that he, uh, he, he, he disobeyed God. Unbeknownst to anyone, he disobeyed God. His name was Achan. And Achan, uh, when they finally found out, in, or when Joshua began to confer of the people of what had happened, Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. Here's what he says. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. That's a good definition of covetousness. Here's what it is. Here's the definition. You ready? Then, when I saw the spoil, a beautiful cloak, we could put any number of things in here. What is it that triggers your eye? Shekels of silver and a bar of gold. Anybody like a bar of gold? Those are, you seen them in, in westerns, you know, because they put them in the wagon train? Saw those? It says, basically, I coveted them and I took them. You see, covetousness keeps us from trusting God sometimes. In the story of King Ahab and Naboth's garden, Naboth, Naboth was a great servant of God, and he had this little garden that he'd inherited from his grandfather's, what it was, and Ahab had pretty much anything he wanted, but he couldn't have that little garden, just a little garden. And so he went and tried to buy it from him, and Naboth said, no, 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 no. That's my grandfather's. I don't want to give it to you. He came back down in the mouth, pouting, because he couldn't have what he wanted. And Jezebel, Jezebel said, you're the king. Just go take it. And he took Naboth's life. Listen to this verse. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil. Another good illustration of covetousness. You sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So it's a great description. What happens when we concede to the sin in our lives? And again, notice the words, you sold yourself to do what is evil. One more. We live in a constant shadow of conflict because covetousness produces conflict in us and with people around us. It really does. He says, uh, James said it this way in James 4. He says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Have you ever wondered what's the source of quarrels and fights in your marriage or in your neighborhood or in your work or in the church? Or what, are the, what, are the, what is the source of those things? James is going to answer What causes quarrels and fights among you? It is, not, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask God. You ask and do not receive because you ask 
wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You see, I would say that most of the conflict that's existed in our world from day one has been conflict that exists because there's a spirit in us that's a part of the old Adamic nature, a spirit of covetousness, and it produces envy and greed and jealousy and strife. It destroys countries. It destroys states. It destroys cities. It destroys neighborhoods. It destroys families. And it can destroy you. A lot of good news this morning, huh? You guys glad you came? This has been a tough week for me, to be honest with you, going through this material. Because, frankly, I said to you, none of you have ever come to me and said, Pastor, pray for me. I am living with the sin of covetousness. But you know what? I don't remember ever confessing it to anyone else either. But there is good news. You see, God has provided an antidote to covetousness. Obviously, the introduction into that antidote is a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because here's what I can tell you. Jesus did not covet anything. And what's weird? He didn't covet anything and he owned it all. He created it all. And he didn't covet a thing. And I want you to hear this this morning. It is only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that God gives you the capacity. God, through the Holy Spirit, produces forgiveness in your heart. And God, through the Holy Spirit, then produces in you whatever is necessary for you to escape the violation of whatever law. And the good news is God has done for you and me what we could never do for ourselves. In fact, we wouldn't do it for ourselves. But there's a word in the New Testament that I think kind of uh, sums up one of the things that God produces in us that helps us overcome the problem of uh, covetousness. And, and here's the word. You ready? It's, it's the word contentment. Contentment. Write it down. It's the word contentment. Um, Paul talked about it in Philippians 4, and, and here's what he says. He says uh, basically he's in jail, and they're sending money to help take care of him while he's there because unlike our prison systems, if you didn't get it from the outside, you didn't get it. And so they were sending money to take care of him, and, and Paul's writing back to them, thanking them for their willingness to care for him and take care of him. And, and then he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. And then he says, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in, to be content. How many of you have learned that? That's a tough one, isn't it? I've learned in any situation I'm in. I mean, whatever the situation in, I've learned to be content. I mean, what situation are you in right now that is, pro- pro- that is providing a spiritual discontentment in you? 
I mean, think about it. He said, I've learned to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But I want you to focus on these words. Contentment is what is produced in me when I fully surrender every aspect of my life to God, knowing that in every situation, God's will will be done. Let me, let me read that to you again this morning, because I think you, it's important you get this. Contentment is what God produces in me when I fully surrender every aspect of my life to him, knowing that in every situation, God's will will be done. Do you believe that? Because if you do, you've learned the secret of contentment. Paul says he learned to be content. I mean, he didn't just wake up one day content. Over the process of God sanctifying his heart, he saved him. But over the process of sanctifying his heart, he learned the secret of being content. Contentment is learned. It's not a download. Don't you wish there was a little app on your phone that said contentment? You download it, and all of a sudden you just think, whoo-hoo. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, God put little buttons on us, contentment, bam. Oh, by the way, there is a download that will help you identify discontentment. You know what it is? The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And it shows me, it, it teaches me. You see, the scripture confronts the internal tendencies that undermine the power of the gospel or the good news in our lives. And let me give you three secrets for learning contentment, and, or four secrets real quickly, and we'll close. First of all, if, if you want to learn to be content, the first thing I think you've got to learn to do is you've got to refuse to compare yourself to others. One of the greatest sources of discontentment in our society is instead of looking up, we look where? We look around, Okay. Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. You see, when I look around and say, well, God, look what you do over there for them. I'm not looking at God, I'm looking at them. And I begin to compare. Can I tell you something? As a pastor, this is hard sometimes. It really is. I mean, you look around. I know churches that actually have buildings. And, you know, there have been times in my life I thought, well, you know, you know, God, what am I, baloney or something here? You know, I've learned that God knows what he's doing. And when I start looking around and comparing myself to other people, discontentment or covetousness begins to invade my heart. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul wrote these words, not that we dare to, comp to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. When you look around and start measuring your life by what's going on around you, the Bible says you are without understanding. I love the passage of Scripture where Jesus says, Who are you, the clay to look at the potter and say, why did you make me like this? Can you imagine if you were a, a, a potter maker, 
what, what do you call a, 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 a ceramic maker? What is that? A, a potter, if I was a potter, okay? I'm a dumber, but I'm a, <laughs> I was a potter. And, and I put a lump of clay on a spinning wheel, okay? And I began to shape it. You think it wouldn't be spooky if the clay looked at you and said, no, I don't want to be a cup. I want to be a pitcher, okay? Well, you know, the, the Bible says we're lumps of clay. When we come to God, we just, and God gets to shape us however he chooses. And we have no right to look at God and say, God, why am I not tall and skinny? <laughs> or God, why do they have, why is it easy for them to memorize scripture? That's hard for me. I wasn't a great student. I mean, God, why, why, does, why does my friend, has he now built three churches in Houston? And God says, Jim, that's none of your business. I didn't ask you to be them. I asked you to follow me. So refuse to compare yourself to others. Guys, I'm going to tell you, this is one of the great sources. If you're looking around saying, look what they get to do, and I don't get to do that. Don't do that. Just know this. My God will supply all your needs to increase his glory in Christ Jesus. Number two, learn to enjoy what you've been given. You know, we're so busy seeking out after things that we don't have yet that we're not enjoying what we've been given. Okay? Um, think about parents. Think about kids. You know how much work they were when they were little tiny ones? Some of you do. You have the little tiny ones. Man, it's hard to enjoy them some days, isn't it? Yeah, and then they become teenagers. It's even worse, okay? You know, um, I like Dobson's philosophy. He says his philosophy is when they turn 13, you put them in a barrel and feed them to a hole. He said when they turn 16, you plug up the hole because they learn to talk a lot more. Now, I shouldn't say that. That's abuse. I'm not telling you to do that, Okay. I understand that feeling, though, okay? But you know what I've discovered? They're gone just like that. Um, Aunt Tobe always says to mothers, days drag, but time flies. And wouldn't it be cool if we could just learn to enjoy what God has put in our life today? Why are you worried about tomorrow? I, I, who said that? Jesus said that. You know, I'm convinced that if we would learn to enjoy what God puts in our hands today, then we'd find the secret of contentment. First Timothy, Paul wrote, as for the rich in this present age, and that would be all of us, by the way, compared to the world. If you've, got, if you've got a nickel in your pocket, oh, good. If you've got change in your pocket, you, now you may not be rich in Santa Clarita, but you're rich compared to the world. I know a part of the world today where this quarter is one-fourth of a day's wage if you get to work. 
So those of you who are rich in this age, that would pretty much cover all of us in here compared to the rest of the world. But if you're rich in the age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides for everything for us, everything for us to what? Enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So enjoy what you've been given. Number three, remember that life is not about things. Life is not about things. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, and he said to them, take care and, not, and be not on be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Um, do you know that I can go online? I could go online today and find out what, if, if I know your name, I can find out what you're worth. So go on and look. You're going to find out. You, you can go on. Literally, you can type a person's name in. If you work for the state, I can find out exactly how much money you make. I can find out what you're worth by looking online. No, I can't. I can find out how much money you might have or how much your house is worth. Or, but you can't measure a man's worth by what he has. You, you want to know how valuable you are? You want to know how valuable you are? It, it, worth is a whole different. You want to know how valuable you are? Look at that. There's where you find your value. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And please hear me this morning. We look around and we establish value or worth based on so many things. And God says, brush it all away and know this. Your value is who I say you are in me, not in yourself. Remember that life is not about things. And then last, focus on the eternal rather than the temporal. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, what are you investing in? What did you do this past week that has eternal implications? Eternal implications. Not internal, not external. Eternal implications. What did you read this week? that has eternal implications? What did you see this week or say this week or do this week that has the potential of impacting eternity? Can I tell you something? When I was at that wedding the other day, okay, there were some great things around me. 
You really were. I mean, it was beautiful. I mean, right out in the, in the farmland over in the Moore Park area, it's beautiful. There was a, there was a beautiful, uh, fresh uh, fruits and stuff. And I actually, on my way home, I bought some. bought some cantaloupe, tomatoes. I bought some uh, broccoli. I bought some of that stuff. It was, I, and I love that stuff because I'm an old country boy. And I was so cool. The venue was beautiful. I mean, it was just gorgeous. It really was. The bride and groom were beautiful, and the wedding was awesome. It really was. But you know my favorite part of the wedding? Was that God in his providence orchestrated an opportunity for me to share Christ with a young man. And I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But I know what can happen with that. I share with you last Sunday that on my way to Texas, I didn't get my rent card. And I wasn't real happy about that. But I would not have missed the opportunity to get in the car with a young man from Ghana and share Jesus with him. Where is the eternity you're investing in? Again, Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where rust does not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's admit it, covetousness is killing our world. It's killing our nation, our state, our city. But sadly, it's also affecting our churches and our families. And here's the reality we must all acknowledge. If I don't allow the Holy Spirit of God to teach me and grow me in this, it can destroy me. When was the last time, maybe you've never done this, when was the last time you said, God, here's my life, and then you left it there. You see, I can't keep this commandment. I can't keep any one of them. I've learned over the last 12 of the week that the necessity of, the necessity of God's laws, but I've realized that I can't keep them. I've learned again that God has done for me in Christ what I can never do for myself, but I've also learned and been reminded that God's grace sets me free, and in that freedom, God's laws were put inside me so that I could begin to live free. Please hear me. You're not free just to go to heaven when you die. You're not just free to go to heaven when you die. God wants you to live free here. And the question today is, are you truly free? We started with one of these verses. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Are you? Imagine with me. Whatever room it was in, Lincoln is there, Abraham Lincoln. And he signs a little document called the Emancipation Proclamation. 
What a cool moment. The Emancipation Proclamation. He signs a document and you are legally free. your owner, your owner says, okay, you're free. Go. You know what I think um, God did? God didn't say you're free. Go. God said, you're free, stay. And, and, and then he looks at us and he says, you know what? You're not only free, but as of today, you're not a slave, you're a child, you're a son, you're a daughter. And whatever's in my house is for you. There's house rules. This is not, it's not God saying, you're free, go. He's saying, you're free, come. He says, come to me, you who are weary and downtrodden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can you imagine what a slave might have felt if they'd have said, you're free, you're on your own, Bubba. See, that's not God. God says you're free and you're no longer a slave to sin. You're now a child of God. John says that the moment we receive Christ, we become his children, that as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. In Ephesians, Paul wrote these words, in him we have, attained, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You're a child of God. You were a slave. But you're a child of God. And God invites you to come to him and rest in him. Even though you've broken the laws, and he invites you to come. 
and to receive him. I close. I was listening to a, an apologetics. I love to listen to a lot of apologetics. I listened to a guy named Ravi Zacharias. If you hadn't heard him, you need to go look him up. He's just amazing. And a student asked him, why do you believe Christianity over all the religions in the world? He said, well, I could give you a lot of answers to that, but let me give you the simplified version. You ready? I just love this answer. Here's what he said. All religious systems tell you if you'll do this, 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 and this, one of these days, you'll find out who you are. And God will be there, but you got to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and then you'll find out who you are. But here's Christianity. You ready? God comes to us. He pays the penalty for our sin. And on the front end, he tells us, you're my son, you're my daughter. Let me walk with you for the rest of your life until you fully understand and receive the inheritance that God gave you the day you received him. If the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. Are you free? Father, thank you for your law. Not because it saves us, because it can't, but it can sure show us how much we need you. Pray this morning that as we have looked at this last commandment that God you would show us that um, our life is not hidden in the things of this world it's not defined by the things of this world it's it's hidden in who you are it's hidden in what you've done for us and God uh, I don't stand here today as one who can boast in any way of keeping any one of these 10 commandments. But God, I have come in faith before a cross. God, I've given my life to you. Father, I pray this morning that as we wrap up this series, that you would help us to not leave here thinking somehow we can keep these commandments but we come to a cross a cross upon which you died and we simply bow and say God be merciful to me a sinner for I'm unclean and undone and God we throw our feet throw ourselves at your mercy God I pray you'd save us that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit God, I pray that that spirit that saves us would begin to engage in us a desire to honor you as God. I pray we would honor you as God and we would honor one another as you've rightly defined that we should. God, I pray that you would be blessed. Father, thank you for your law. Thank you most, most of all for grace that gives us hope. 
and we commit this day to you. In Jesus' name I pray.